Good afternoon. It's four o'clock and the second Tuesday of the month. It's time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM Blue Hill and WERU.org. Boat Talk is usually a call-in show, but that's not happening right now. So this is a pre-recorded edition and no phone calls can be taken. The Boat Talk Rusty Anchors, Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce, got together with John Johansson, the editor of Maine Coastal News, via Zoom last week to talk boats, and I spoke with a pretty amazing woman about a couple of weeks ago, all to put together a show we hope you will find interesting. We're going to begin today with an interview I did a couple of weeks ago with Sophia D'Ambrosi. She is planning and training for a row across the Atlantic Ocean in December. Most normal people use a rowboat to travel short distances, and I know rowing across the Atlantic has been done before, but when I hear someone has done it, all I can think of is they must be nuts. I can't imagine finding four such nuts together, but Sophia and three other women in Bristol, England, are gearing up for that grueling event right now. But wait, it gets worse. Sophia and her three teammates are just one of 25 teams that will be rolling across the Atlantic in December. Talisker's Whiskey sponsors the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge every year since 2013, except for 2014, with teams of one, two, three, four, or five people. That means, by my count, 53 nuts will be starting from the Canary Islands and rowing 3,000 miles across the Atlantic to Antigua. It's been calculated that it is 1.5 million strokes. Plus, it's costly to enter, mostly to pay for the safety measures. And I really shouldn't call these people nuts. I'm sure they're really nice folk, and most of them are raising money for charities. So more power to them, I say. You can see pictures and get more information by searching the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge on the web. That's whiskey with no E. And here's Sophia. The race house in a few years, Talisker Whiskey became the, the prime sponsor back in, I believe, 2013. And since then, the, the race every year has got bigger and bigger. So um, there's teams of, of many sizes that take part. So there's solos, there's pairs, uh, trios, fours, and up to five, teams of five um, that can take part. And uh, it has become very much a popular, um, I guess, challenge really because I think there's a lot of people that kind of are looking for something bigger to do you know a lot of people that come from strong endurance backgrounds and they've climbed mountains and they've done marathons and and you know and it's sort of like a very very different challenge that incorporates so many elements of of risk but also of, of excitement um, and of kind of you know new things it's only 25 team centered 
Um, so around half of them are teams of sort of three and and four, and then there's a few solos and a couple, a few pairs as well. Um, there is a limit as to the number of crews that take part, and obviously, like, I guess, not the most known or popular sport either. There is a a lot of hurdles simply to get to the start line. It's a very expensive race to take part in, a very expensive challenge. Um, and therefore, a lot of teams kind of not, you know, don't really get to the to the start line itself because they don't get to the funding. Um, and obviously, there's the, all the training that is demanded and doing all of this on, in our cases, we're doing everything on the side of our, our full-time jobs. So it becomes a full-time job on the side of your job, which, yeah, it's extremely challenging um, at the best of times. That's a big row, 3,000 miles. What about safety? Yeah, definitely. So the race have very strict uh, kind of conditions that, that the boats need to meet. So from a safety perspective, but obviously from a design perspective of like weight, size, etc. So we're rowing in a Rannoch Adventure design. So they're one of the very few um, ocean rowing boat manufacturers in the world. And the boat is designed so that it's about 28 feet uh, long and it's got two cabins. Uh, one at each end. The bow cabin is the bigger cabin. Two people fit there. It's, it's about two meters long. Um, and then the stern cabin, also two people fit there, but it's a much smaller cabin and it's where all the kind of navigation equipment and, and uh, kind of auto helm and, and rudder is. So um, there's a lot more going on in that in that cabin in terms of space. Um, and then in the middle of the boat, it's, it's open. So it's not a closed boat. It's very much an open boat with seats three seats three rowing positions so you can have at any one point three people rowing but that means when three people are rowing there's nothing else that can happen on deck so normally you have shifts of two people uh two rowing two resting at any one time so that you can use the rest of the space on the deck to kind of you know sit and rest and cook and and do everything else they need to do so um the boat obviously doesn't have any mod comps or, or any uh, or a toilet so uh, you use buckets um, and all the food is dehydrated or freeze dried that, that you bring on board uh, or some of it is, is wet rations so kind of ready to eat food um, and then in terms of water we make fresh water using a desalination unit that is also fitting in the boat um, so all of the hull of the boat, as much as possible, is split in hatches and into little cabins that we're storing all of the food, all of the equipment that we've got to take, um, and and all of our our I guess personal you know clothes and and kind of foul weather gear and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, in particular for us, we're rowing in kind of the first of its kind, like eco, more eco-friendly boat. It's an eco-rowing boat built by uh, Renegade Adventure, based in the UK. It's a boat designed for three to five rowers, um, and the difference with standard vessels is, is in the materials that have been used to create the boat, but also the manufacturing process around it that has been um, adapted to have less impact on the environment. So much more kind of eco-friendly um, and a lot less waste, a lot of, sort of biodegradable um, consumables used um, and reusable consumables as well. Um, and in terms of the materials, the glass fiber is 100% uh, renewable energy kind of manufactured with. The resin is, is organic in its majority. And then the foam core, which is kind of the biggest material, is 100% from recycled 
at PET, so post-consumer plastic. So it's basically about 10,000 plastic bottles that have been recycled and put into the hull. Um, so obviously that's really, really great for us. It's, it's quite groundbreaking in its sense. Like I know that there has been other vessels that have been created, um, you know, have been built in more eco-friendly ways. So by no means this is the most eco-friendly that it could be, but it is a step forward in the right direction for the industry certainly for the rowing industry and for the marine industry as well. Um, so, yeah, very excited about that. You mentioned cooking and navigation equipment. So you must have uh, solar panels for power. Yes. So all of the all of the electronics in the boat are solar powered. We've got two big solar panels, one on top of each of the cabins, and those... Um, we have two two twelve volt uh, batteries, so we essentially are operating on the back of two solar panels and two batteries, which store that power, and then that's used for water maker. It's used for navigation, um, and then to kind of charge devices. So we're going to need like satellite phones, etc. And speaking of power, what what about your ore power? Yeah, so we the 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 oars are essentially sweep blades. So in in standard kind of like crew rowing, you you either have sculling, which is uh, you know done with with much shorter oars, and then you have sweep, which is where you row only one side. And in those cases, that the the oars are much longer. So our oars are about three point two meters long. Um, which, as you say, like they are heavier because you're essentially using two and you're sculling using both oars. So um, there's a lot of, of weight that is, you know, being put on your on your legs and then obviously then on your on your upper body as well. So, so do you mean that one person has just one oar? No, no. So we we do we use the we use sweep oars, but we we do still scull. So we do still use two oars each, um, which in turn makes it, yeah, as you say, like, you know, it's a heavier, but at the same time, like, you know, you are trying to push ocean water away from you, which you kind of need to build that momentum. So um, we do need kind of bigger rules for that. This is going to take a lot of training and conditioning. Yeah, definitely. So there's, there's a few aspects to the training. Um, the physical side, very important, obviously. So we're in the gym kind of at the moment, probably maybe two, three times a week, just doing strength and conditioning. So a lot of kind of stretching and um, flexibility stuff and mobility stuff, making sure we're injury proof. Um, there's an element of, of endurance and, and conditioning from a rowing perspective. So uh, I'm on the rowing machine twice a week for at least an hour or, or hour and a half. Um, and then every weekend we're, we're out rowing in, in the actual sea. So we're rowing out of the south coast of, the UK um, onto the English Channel, and we've just been up to Scotland to row around the Isle of Skye as well. So, a lot of actual ocean rowing preparations is facing big winds and storms um, that you know we need to prepare for. And then there's obviously the mental aspect of it, which um, is, if anything, more important. So, um, I think this is a physical challenge, but if anything, it's a much bigger mental challenge. and we have been working with a, a team of sort of high performance development and, and they have helped us a lot with defining what our goal for the race is or we're trying to achieve as a team 
um, you know, just aligning our our values and understanding our kind of, you know, communication, how we receive and how we, you know, um, also give information and make sure that we're being, I guess, communicated in the right way so we can understand each other better. And, and that element of building a lot of empathy for each other because these are going to be very rough conditions and everyone's going to be very naked and exposed. Um, you know, in, in every way. So it's so very, very important to have good understanding of each other. Is the boat finished? Yeah, it is, it is. So it's a new boat built in June this year, and we've had it since then, and we've been rowing in it since then, and it's the same boat we're using to, to race in December. So are you still fitting it out? Definitely, and now you're going to, like, build in everything that you're going to need. So we're putting in all of our kind of necessary... Um, you know, compartments and and um, just organizing all the kit in the way that we want to have it and use it. So all of that uh, kind of still needs to happen. And how much more practice do you have? So the race starts in December. It's the 12th of December. Um, and it takes anything between, I think, very much weather dependent. So it's difficult to tell right now. But um, I guess anything under 37 days is is extremely, extremely good. Um, we're, we're targeting uh, under 40 days, ideally. We'd like that very much, but it's going to be weather dependent. Um, and yeah, solos can take up to sort of like three months. So it is de- definitely, it's a race, but it's, is the challenge is getting from A to B, you know, like not everyone really, or like people don't really see it as, oh, we want to win. People see it as, you know, the goal here is to get to the other side, first and foremost, in a safe manner. December used to be the end of hurricane season, but lately it's been later. Yeah, so obviously January, February is calmer from a kind of a current in the Atlantic with a lot less activity, so um, it is a good time of the year to go across, but at the same time, you know, the ocean is, you've got to respect it and you've got to be very uh, careful and safe regardless of whether it is hurricane season or not. So we're really hoping it's not going to be bad, but you never, you know, we're, we're still going to hit bad weather um, every now and again. So we'll uh, we'll just have to be careful. What is navigating going to involve? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the navigation is, is certainly challenging. Um, for at least, you know, at the start and, and at the end, like in the middle, there's not, I guess, that much that you do because you're kind of pointing and there's, there's only so much mileage you cover in, in any one day. Um, and, you know, in the kind of middle block of the race, you're, you know, you're in the middle of the ocean. So if you go a couple of degrees north or south, it's not really necessarily going to make or break you. But it's very much about your kind of earlier decisions and, and how you avoid weather systems and, to say like you know just either try and get through them quick before they hit you or try and power through them or go around them so and will will there be chase boats yeah so there's two safety boats that kind of uh not like circumvent the 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 fleet so they'll go around uh, some teams never see them some teams see them a couple of times it kind of depends on where you are in in the pack but there's normally a boat towards the front and one towards the back. And ideally, those boats are never more than like 24 hours away from you. So if something does go wrong, then it means um, they are there to, to give you a hand. But they can't really be passing on food or anything like that. That They are essentially there for 
you know, that they're absolutely last resort um, option of getting off the boat. And what, what about your funding? Yeah, definitely. So to mention, like getting to the start line is, um, it's, it's very hard from a training perspective, but also from a fundraising perspective. So getting the the boat and all the equipment, all the food and all the operational costs together. Obviously, we're using a lot of our own savings, but majority is uh, we're trying to fundraise from corporate sponsors and from individuals. So um, we have our website, which is the thebristolgulls.com. Uh, so gulls coming from seagulls, as you say. And then our kind of all of our social media is at the Bristol Girls, so Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, and we have a YouTube channel as well. Um, and yeah, in our website you can find our crowdfunding page as well. We have a Just Giving crowdfunding page, and all of this money is essentially being used to cover the cost of the equipment and the boat. And then after the race, the boat is sold, and all the money will be going to charity. So. Um, we are supporting two charities in the UK. One is the Yaren Ally Lifeboat, um, who very much focus on safety at sea. And then another local charity for us is Clean Up Bristol Harbour, a group of volunteers um, that essentially look after cleaning the harbour, really, and, and uh, making sure that like landfill waste um, is taken off the, the water that accumulates in the harbour. So. Um, two courses that we're very passionate about and obviously very aligned to our mission um, to be more eco-friendly and, and more environmentally friendly in all aspects of our row. So, um, so yeah, I know, check it out. Any Every single pound, you know, helps us. Every single dollar is super important to us um, because otherwise, you know, we're, we're, we're not getting to the start line. And, and, of course, any money that we recover from reselling the kit and the boat will be going to charity. Besides finishing, do you have any other goals? Um, no, I like. I mean, I I am absolutely in love with this campaign. Um, I mean, I I love the ocean and I love rowing. And the reason why these three amazing ladies that are in the team with me and I came together is because we all have very aligned um, kind of goals in life, I guess, and values, and we respect each other a lot and obviously like spending time with each other. Otherwise, it would, would be a nightmare. Um, but we are very, very passionate about it, and we really believe in, in kind of trying to inspire a bit of change. So, um, so yeah, I guess for anyone interested, like, we do post on social media, like, things about lifestyle changes. And if we can inspire people to at least make one very small change towards a more eco-friendly lifestyle at home, then that would mean the world to us. So, so do, you know, check it out. Thank you very much, Sonia D'Ambrosi of the Bristol Gulls, and best of luck. No, thank you, Alan, for getting in touch, and really, really nice to, to speak to you and meet you, and thanks for this opportunity. Pretty amazing ladies. Their website, again, for participating in the Telescars Whiskey Atlantic Challenge is thebristolgulls.com. Thebristolgulls, all one word, dot com. Best of luck, ladies. Next, Mike would like to talk about captains. We are trying as hard as we can to do boat talk and make it be something. You know, in strange times where 
we've tried a couple ways to record up to four people and have never got all four people on a recording. Um, yeah. You know, struggled doing it, have not had much help, and it hasn't been all that much fun or it's not good radio. So, but we haven't given up and we're Zooming tonight because uh, Mike Joyce um, finally identified himself to his own computer. And uh, again, we're trying to uh, imagine what we can do in these times, make some radio. So here's a big point. Feedback loop. I mean, Botox, the call-in radio show. The feedback loop, strictly speaking, between us and the audience, kind of ain't there right now. So the regular one ain't there. Let's make a new one. Okay. For instance, uh, you can't call, but you can email. And we'll give you a couple. The basic one would be info at weru.org slash boat talk. They'll send it to us, get a couple of those. But also think of these two here. Um, very simple uh, radio show, uh, you know, addresses boat talk at gmail.com, you know, come right to us. And uh, barefoot boat talk at hotmail.com want a feedback loop um, very much uh, sadly missing Go ahead. like to speak of the uh, climate change you know on boat talk pretty regular and oh yeah of course um we've just now crossed 10 landed hurricanes this season which is unprecedented they've gone to the greek alphabet to identify them the uh fires out in california have now been called gigafires they are not normal at all big flooding in the uh southeast there and sideways tornado in iowa that laid all the corn and soybeans down a couple weeks back yeah. the uh, fires out in california the gigafires size of rhode island they've been burning for two months and they're only half can contained and i guess uh Again, the message is not normal times. Got a choice. Choose the flood. You can swim away. Uh, fire is uh, much more harmful. And been reading building magazines about building fire and flood resistant buildings. You can do both. Both very expensive and only on the terms that you make them so they're repairable afterwards. Not so they won't, you know get fire or flooded and the idea tonight was a uh, good captain bad captain captain is a learned and earned position you don't just get appointed or elected captain especially if you've never been on a boat and don't understand how they work and don't care to learn that's not a recipe for good things before you're traveling on a fake chart you know and uh so anyway, good captain, bad captain. We've all known uh, more than a few of those and through history and literature, there are a bunch of great examples. I've got uh, uh, a few in front of me tonight and I know the boys have been thinking about it too. So so who do you got? I don't know, I wanna start with history. A uh, couple of great favorites would be, uh, one of them be uh, Samuel de Champlain who um, visited here in 160-something or other into the Great Harbor at uh, Mount Desert where the boat talk cruise actually happens. And uh, 
interestingly enough, the natives come out in their canoes and knew to stay a musket shot away. How, how had they learned that? Uh, they've been shot at and kidnapped uh, more than a time or two before Champlain got there. One of the cool things about Champlain was, uh, especially as a delivery sailor, uh, local knowledge, <laughs> something we all always want. Champlain always wanted the locals' knowledge and courted them instead of looked at them as, uh, hey, let's knock them over the head and, uh, you know, uh, slave them or something. Uh, he tried to communicate with them. And David, uh, let me think now, David Hackett Fisher, Champlain's Dream. Uh, read D for just a second. He was a man of vision, and like most visionaries, he dreamed of many things. But all these visions were part of a larger dream that has not been studied. This war-weary soldier had a dream of humanity and peace in a world of cruelty and violence. He envisioned a new world as a place where people of different cultures could live together in amity and accord. This become his grand idea for North America. He traveled in uh, different circles and uh, he knew the Indians, for instance, individually as uh, intimately and individually. He had a way of getting along with very different people and also had the rarest gift of all. In long years of labor, he found a way to convert his dreams to reality. In the face of great obstacles and heavy defeats, he exercised his skills of leadership in extreme conditions. Those of us who are leaders today have something to learn from him about that. Champlain was a leader, but he was not a saint. He was a mortal man of flesh and blood and a very complicated man. He made horrific errors in his career, and some of his mistakes cost the lives of other men. He cultivated an easy manner, but sometimes he drove his men so hard that four of them tried to murder him. <laughs> and his quest for amity and concord with the Indians led to wars with the Mohawk and the Onondaga. His idea of humanity was very large, but it was also limited in strange, ironic ways. Champlain embraced the American Indians, but not his own French servants. He had deep flaws and made many enemies and responded badly to criticism. Uh, he could be very petty to rivals. But other men who knew this wrote of him with respect and affection. Even his enemies did so. Uh, Samuel of Champlain from Champlain's Dream, David Hackett Fisher. One of my, uh, again, heroes who come local here. Who else do you have? Oh, good Lord. Got a big pile here. Uh, how about bad captain? Captain Bly. Come on. He wasn't that bad. No. He was a good he, artist, you know. Oh, good Lord. And competent. He was beyond competent. That was uh, one of the things about him that, uh, you know. You but know, he had another he, mutiny. Captain Bly suffered three mutinies, it turns out. The one on the bounty was only the first. He had he another the, one. And uh, there was a big mutiny for the whole Navy. Uh, at 1798 the, uh, and Spithead. Yeah, exactly. He was at the Nor, and uh, he got taken by his own sailors and that. Wasn't blamed for that. It happened to other people, too. Right. He was then, after... A few years later, governor of New South Wales and uh, the Rum Punch Rebellion broke out 
he was taken prisoner and held in prison for a, a year there and then brought home and made an admiral. So I didn't hold that against him either. Um, <laughs> but he had three mutinies. That's just, I mean, come on now. See, he sailed with Cook. And he was yes, the actual illustrator. Yeah, he was the yeah, illustrator. That's how he learned his business. And again, he was really good at what he did. And uh, people person, eh, not so much. You a know? lot of them weren't people persons, though. They ran the ship. And a lot of times you couldn't be a people person. The only one oh, that I know in the British Royal Navy that was very, very good with his crew was uh, Lord Nelson, Lord Horatio Nelson. In fact, at the, at Spithead in Noor, his crew did not mutiny. Yeah. Hmm. You know? Got Nelson on my list here. He is quoted as saying, desperate affairs require desperate remedies. Hello. What do you mean? His affair with his with his girlfriend? Oh, I'm just saying, let's <laughs> zoom out, uh, you know, then and now. Because, <laughs> um, of course, it, you know, he wanted he wanted England to pay for his mistress, but they didn't. Well, and lay yourself alongside, never do wrong. But here's another favorite. Uh, gentlemen, when the enemy is committed to a mistake, we must not interrupt him too soon. Lord Nelson. Mm -hmm. Huh. Yeah, so he, anyway, uh, how about uh, let's go to one of the greatest ones of all time, uh, Shackleton, you know. Um, he went south three times to uh, try to uh, explore and discover Antarctica. None of them went well, and on the last one he died. And uh, the uh, second one was Endurance, where... Uh, the ship got locked in the ice. It was crushed and sank. Uh, it took them two years, basically, to get all the men back to land, and all of them survived, every one of them. And you know, if somebody them. tried to do that uh, trek over the island? Yeah. And couldn't do it. Couldn't no. do it in the time frame that they did it in. No. Desperate people. No, and uh, Shackleton is... Uh, just an incredible, willful fellow, alone, competent, you know. Difficulties are just things to overcome, you know. He also was quoted as saying, if I had not uh, strength of will, I would have made a first-class drunkard, you know. <laughs> and um, here's another fellow who said uh, one of the greatest things about Shackleton, Sir Raymond Priestley, another explorer. He said, for scientific discovery, give me Scott. For speed and efficiency of travel, give me Amundsen. But when disaster strikes and all hope is gone, get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton. Yeah. And again, they stressed that he had the ability to uh, try and fail and then get the boys to try something else and make it work. Keep it coming, you know. They trusted him, uh, again, uh, hell of a leader, you know. Did you have Perry on there? No, didn't get to uh, Captain Perry, but uh, he was a rear admiral. But I never oh, thought he uh, made the North Pole. North Pole fellow, yes. I never thought he did. He had too many no. miles to go, and he didn't have any toes. Like I say, technically speaking, didn't quite get there, but um, right. you know. But yeah. did Cook get there? Well, Captain Cook. Um, Man, he was a guy that loved local knowledge, too. 
Captain Cook, uh, uh, love local knowledge, died of it in Hawaii years later. So, uh, you know, uh, he's on the well, list now, too. We're talking about two different cooks. If you get into the controversy of Perry making the North Pole, you got to go to Frederick Albert Cook. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I'm believe, talking to the classic Captain Cook, uh, you know, right. English. The uh, one that yeah. made three voyages to the Pacific. Yeah, English fellow. Yeah. Yep. Found what? Most of Australia and Tasmania. Oh, no charts. Um, no, you hell try no. it. You try no it. GPS. Like I say, a uh, bunch of tricky water, mm -hmm. let alone a bunch of water. How about Charles Francis Hall if we want to stay in the Arctic? Uh, say something about him. Well, he went to the, he spent about five years in the Arctic, but he lived with the Inuit and learned all of their practices. So he understood how to survive in, in that environment. And he was very, very good at it. So he made a, an attempt to go to the pole. And I can't remember where they exactly were up the Davis Straits. But they don't know if his crew killed him or he killed himself accidentally yeah. by overdosing on arsenic. But he almost he he might have been able to make the pole because he knew how to, you know, navigate and and survive in that environment, which wasn't easy to do. According uh, local of, knowledge. Right. He died of arsenic. But back then, arsenic was part of your medicine. Sure. So he he could have overdosed on it. Yeah. And then let's talk about Franklin, John Franklin. So John Franklin, he was another yeah. one. But then they bring off their ship. Here you are, got, you're losing two ships, the Erebus and Terra. And <laughs> you bring off the silverware? Why? You don't want to carry silverware around with you. It took him, what, 10 years to finally find out what happened? But the Inuits knew the story. The story was with the Inuits. They knew what, what happened to the vessels. Yeah. Again, uh, Sir John Lawson, the Northwest Passage, 1840s, I think it was. Yeah. Well, um, we're talking about lead poisoning going on there too. Which oh is, yeah, they had a they had a few problems. Yeah. And then if you <laughs> were, let's go back a little earlier and we go to Nathaniel Bowditch. Now they actually made him a captain, but when he took command of the ship, he told the mates that they ran the ship and he would do the navigating because he really didn't know how to run a ship. Oh. And he went to the Pacific. He Most of the time he was supercargo, but he understood navigation unbelievably. But he, he, he said, I don't know how all of this stuff works. <laughs> so he made the mates, the, you know, they really ran the vessel. But he only made a... Uh, a couple of voyages as captain. And then uh, if you get up into the modern era, you could get into some of the, uh, you know, the naval commanders. And one of them that always gets me, and I always like stories about him, is Admiral Hyman Rickover. And without oh, Hyman yes. Rickover, you wouldn't have a nuclear navy. But, you know, he did some questionable things, especially if you were one that was a cadet looking to, you know, to be placed on board a nuclear submarine as a commander you know his his interviews are legendary he'd cut the front legs off your seat he'd stick you in the closet you know he asked one guy if he could take a picture on top of i think it was was it tourist mountain 
It was inside the zoo anyways, and you had to put the tigers inside the cage so you didn't get eaten. And the guy made a deal with a zookeeper and was able to do it. <laughs> I uh, captained a um, boat for a fellow 14 years, had a Learjet, a Naval Academy graduate who worked for uh, Rick Over, and I heard a couple of stories. Um, <laughs> man... Uh, Never smoked a uh, cigarette or a cigar in his life and died of lung cancer. Uh, spent a little time in the nuclear, uh, you know, like say Navy there. So mm -hmm. how about another naval hero? This from a great little book. Uh, it's kind of a kid's book. John Paul Jones, Soldier of the Sea. Okay. Um, he was the son of a Scottish gardener and he was small of stature and violent of temper. And of course, he was one of the greatest naval officers in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. He started in the English Merchant Marine at the age of 13. And by the time he had commanded a ship, he had still not learned to keep his temper under control. Two unfortunate experiences in the West Indies on his uh, first command, he had a sailor whipped who then died. Sailors took that badly in the next command. Um, they were plotting to throw him overboard. And uh, one of them um, come at him and John Paul Jones run through with a sword. And um, he got away with that. But uh, again, well, sailors, he had to change his name. Uh, yes, that's when he went on to a slaver, added uh, Jones to his name and uh, moved to America. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, from the uh, book again, it was then they added Jones to his name of John Paul. It was also these experiences which caused him to move to Virginia, made him available to the American Navy during the Revolutionary War. He was by far the ablest captain in the American service, and it was he who wrote many of the rules and made many of the traditions which govern the American Navy even today. Battles are won by men, not ships, is an old naval saying, and John Paul Jones knew that ships and their men won battles when they were well commanded. He suggested establishing a Naval Academy, trained young officers and insisted they be gentlemen as well as seamen. Half a century after his death, the Naval Academy in Annapolis was established and another half century later, it become his final resting place. Yep, Always unbeatable in any battle, John Paul Jones is most famous for his thrilling, surprising victory over separate uh separus and the old so poorly armed bonhomme richard yeah and the three and a half hour battle off the coast of england the ancient bonhomme richard was pounded to pieces but jones simply refused to surrender his victory was one which every naval officer remembers when he enters battle and again um the english guy was uh not feeling too good about anything and saw an American lieutenant go towards pulling the flag down and yelled, do you want quarter, please, now? You want quarter? I'll give you some. Oh, yeah, you know. And John Paul Jones checked the American lieutenant and roared back, I have not yet begun to fight. Didn't know when to quit, never. Another good one from uh, the uh, revolution that came actually from Marblehead, but later would uh, come here to Maine and settle in uh, Bristol, now Round Pond, uh, was Captain Samuel Tucker. And he is actually credited with gaining enough gunpowder 
to supply George Washington to keep the war going in the early years. And if you go down through Bremen and you're headed towards Round Pond on, your, on both sides is a cemetery, the road splits the cemetery. And on the left side, you look at this statue that stands about 12 feet high. That's Captain Samuel Tucker's grave. The problem with the, with the monument to him is they used a pair of uh, binoculars. Well, unfortunately, binoculars weren't uh, invented until the 1860s. <laughs> well, <laughs> little things. <laughs> Should have had a spyglass, but okay. At least they acknowledged that he did it. Yep, and we are trying to do some boat talk this evening, uh, Zoom-wise, talk about good captain, bad captain. There are a bunch of them, and uh, <laughs> um, it's your ship, Captain Michael Brasshoff, uh, former commander of the U.S. Benfold, a uh, guided missile frigate. Management techniques from the best damn ship in the Navy. The uh, Benfold become legendary inside and outside the Navy for its efficiency. He uh, took responsibility of being captain and worked on improving his own leadership skills so he could improve the ship. He created a confident and inspired crew of problem solvers eager to take initiative. You know, the slogan aboard was, it's your ship. And you got to see the ship through the eyes of the crew. You've got to uh, realize they know what they're doing and communicate, communicate, communicate. You create discipline by focusing on purpose. Discipline skyrocketed when everybody thought what they were doing was important. And then you got to listen to your sailors and uh, help them with stuff like, uh, you know, passing SAT tests so that they can get GI Bill things. But here's a great little uh, example of good captain, bad captain, I think. And, um, Let's think. Uh, at the beginning of August uh, that year, two weeks before we were to uh, depart to the uh, Mideast there, I told Master Chief, load up 100 cases of beer on the ship and lock them up. He looked alarmed as he might be dealing with a closet loony. In fact, he gave me the 100-yard stare totally dazed because drinking alcohol is absolutely forbidden on Navy ships and for a good reason. Nautical war Russell's with stories of mutinies, shipwrecks, and other disasters fueled by alcohol. Captain, what are you going to do with 100 cases of beer? I haven't a clue, I answered, but when opportunity presents itself, I don't want to be unprepared. And by the way, please get premium beer. Don't want my crew drinking anything substandard. It was obvious from his expression that he wasn't exactly with the program, and a week later, I asked where the beer was, and he said, well, the Chiefs haven't ordered it yet. Why not? Well, sir, we just think it's a bad idea to load beer. We think the crew will get in trouble. As a Pentagon alumni, I know slow rolling when I see it, and I was being slow rolled. When people don't agree with you, they saw their actions till your past drop dead date. Master Chief, I said calmly, I want you to load 100 cases of beer on my ship. Three days later, he came back with the executive officer, and both of them tried to change my mind. You guys don't understand, I said. I want beer on this ship. There's no way we can talk you out of it, Captain. No way whatsoever. And in short order, an 18-wheeler beer truck backed down the pier, 
we loaded 100 cases of premium beer, put them under lock and key. I had the key. No one can figure out when, if ever, we might drink the stuff, but you can't go into a combat zone without proper gear. That was the Ben Feld motto. Always be prepared. By December 30, 1997, we had completed almost our entire uh, golf tour and still hadn't touched the beer. I was beginning to think the opportunity would never come. The very next day, New Year's Eve, Saddam Hussein threw another fit and Benfield was ordered to leave Bahrain and get into position to fire our Tomahawk missiles at Iraq if ordered. What upset everyone on board, including me, was that the other ships were staying in Bahrain where their crews could celebrate New Year's Eve at the Navy base. In effect, they were getting prized for being less proficient with their cruise missiles than we were. And unfortunately, the crisis passed. While we were standing by at sea on the afternoon of December 31st, heavy storm doused Bahrain with two inches of rain. Bahrain has no sewers and two inches of not very clean water flooded the entire city. It knocked out the power plant and closed the Navy base. And as a result, all the sailors were restricted to their ships on New Year's Eve, no alcohol. Benford was told to return to port if we wished. Instead, I set a course for the anchorage outside Bahrain, told my supply officer to chill the beer. He looked pained and perplexed. So did the master chief. Sir, I'd like to try, try to talk you out of serving beer on the ship. Master Chief, I answered. I have no intention of serving beer on the ship. Why are you cooling it down, sir? We're going to have a cookout and drink beer, but not on this ship. As we approached the anchorage, we were met by a huge barge. I had arranged with our husbanding agent to have it towed there. We lowered our ladder to the barge and presto, we had, at least in my interpretation of regulations, access to a non-ship party space. That night, while all other sailors in the night spent a bone dry New Year's Eve restricted to the ships, my people had a well-earned blast on our party barge where the beer flowed, cookout sizzled, stereo boomed, and we cheered the arrival of 98. The one thing we didn't have was fireworks. I mean, we probably could have rustled up with all the fireworks we had on the ship, but we were delighted to celebrate with friends in a unique way to the Benfold in a way that honored our hard work and many sailors said it was the best New Year's Eve party they had ever attended, not just with shipwrights, uh, shipmates, but with comrades. And that's how their captain felt too. And again, good captain. From It's Your Ship, Captain Michael Abrashoff. How about the uh, the captain of the uh, aircraft carrier that uh, complained about no COVID response on board and, and got nailed for it? Yes, and uh, was cheered off the boat and then reinstated because he was looking out for his men. They didn't come back. Right. They didn't let him back. They rescinded that order. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank God the commander in, commander in chief as well. And, uh, you know, can arrive around and wave to us, wave to us. And uh, I'm uh, I was told not to worry about it. <laughs> like I say, I'm told by my great leader not to worry about anything. And that as a captain kind of dude myself, it puzzles me. Leadership is a thing. It's important. As I say, you don't just get 
appointed captain. It's a learned and earned position. And it has a lot of responsibilities and respect is a two-way street, big time. You can't get respect from people you don't respect. Let's just start. And the captain can't ever be a bully or claim to be the victim of the the boat, the crew, the trip, uh, you know, whatever, everything blows my tiny mind. Again, uh, good captain, bad captain tonight on boat talks. What we're trying to talk about. Alan, who did you have? Well, I was thinking of the, uh, the captain of the uh, Costa Concordia. Remember that one that ran aground? Uh, oh, the one off Italy. Off Italy. Yeah. And he was one of the first guys off the boat. <laughs> well, he wasn't stupid. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't read that part where you had to go down with the ship yeah no I think he was uh, thinking about vacation time I, I understand he, he's, he's doing some prison time now yeah he did go to prison I don't know how long he got I think it was quite a long time you know it was a number of years yeah several people got killed I got one it, his nickname was Bully Waterman. His last name was Waterman, but he was the captain of the clipper ship Lightning. And he was notorious for drive. And American skippers were notorious for driving their ships hard. You know, they would pile on as all the sail they could. Very rarely would they take it down, no matter what the weather was, just to make time, because time meant that more money to the captain, because if he was the first to arrive in port, because he got the highest, you know, pay for his freight. And uh, he lost uh, men off Cape Horn. Uh, he ended up in the Red Record, which was uh, not something you wanted to be written up in. It's where the bad captains were noted so that if you were a sailor, you could read the Red Record and see which ships you didn't want to join. But there was a lot of interesting captains that came out of the clipper ship era. You know, that ran basically from New York to San Francisco during the gold rush. And then when the wheat, the wheat trade out of the West Coast was developed, then they ran to England and stuff. Coal, they would run coal. But the clipper ship era only lasted till 57 in the, in the depression in that year. But he was another one that, that they wrote up quite frequently about the things that he did on board a vessel. Most of them not good. Well, I got something different. If you want to go for it, you want to keep on with the captains. That's fine. No, go change the subject. Okay. Well, my John, you probably have seen this on G Captain, but uh, Coast Guard now is uh, doing some testing with a. Uh, if you call yeah, in autonomous, yeah, call in with a distress signal. You know who are going to send to you is nobody. Not sure how that's going to work. Uh, yeah, <laughs> especially if you're in the water. How's it going to tell? How's it going to see you? Well, it's interesting because if you go on, I, I use Curiosity Stream, and it has a lot of high-end scientific programs on it. And it went into AI, and AI is going to supersede the human brain by 2045. And, or, and in some cases, I think it already has. As, it certainly you know, has mine. <laughs> but it's interesting to see the things like they showed you a car that was autonomous and it doesn't just go by a map 
but it also sees things that are moving and can judge if that's going to get into the road or not. And so in a lot of cases, it, you know, the human causes about 70 to 80% of the accidents because of human error and a computer wouldn't do that. Now people have always said, well, what happens if it gets a bug or virus, whatever, but actually it has backup systems. So, you know, in some cases it would never make a mistake. You know, and it teaches itself. Some of them can already teach them. The computer can teach itself, yeah. which is kind of scary. <laughs> but I think yeah. in certain applications, I can't see how I, I can see if somebody is behind it and watching with a video camera. So you can see maybe the person in the water and you can move the boat to them and, and, and move it around so that they can get in, you know, or something like that. But you know, I, I still, you know, but in certain conditions, you don't want people out there. Well, that's right. Yeah. If you, you call for help and it's really snotty. Yeah. Yeah. I interviewed a Coast Guide guy today down in Topsom who was real interesting because he did all kinds of jobs. He was in the Coast Guide for 38 years. And one of his things was he was on weather patrol. And of course, when satellites came in, they, you know, the Coast Guide no longer did weather patrols. But some of the stories he had about doing weather patrols, you know, you know, off the Davis Strait, off of Iceland before they gave it to Denmark, because now Denmark or at that time, Denmark took that over. But it was horrendous sea duty <laughs> just to go out there and sit on a weather station, you know, and because you were basically a beacon for the airplanes that were going across the Atlantic. Because you had radio frequencies and the and the airplanes would zoom in on those frequencies and and bounce across the Atlantic on them. So he was really interesting to talk to today. You know, it's interesting to go through the boat shops. I was in General Marine, which is in Biddeford, and they mostly do 22 footers now, center console boats, and also with a cabin model. And they're out straight. They're booked right into next summer. So, you know, the boat building world right now is actually doing pretty well. And, and it's sort of surprising to me that it's doing as well as it is, mm. you know, but it looks like most everybody's going to have work that goes right through the winter. Mm. And a lot of people use their boat this year. So that means, you know, more maintenance that's going to need to be done. You know, nice so work. Be, if you can get it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, that means that, you know, that basically the boat yard, it's got a lot of work this winter, you know, to, you know, make sure the boat's ready for the, the next season. Well, you know? works for us. Right. I mean, there's one at uh, H&H Marine, which is in Steuben, and that's going to be finished off as a tuna boat for Wicked Tuna. She'll be on Wicked Tuna. So she's almost done. I think it's down to just wiring and systems. The most interesting one that got launched recently was at Brooklyn Boatyard when they launched the Wheeler, the 38-foot uh, cruiser that was designed by the Wheeler Company and offered years ago. But the company went bankrupt back in the mid-60s. They were from New York, and they built a really nice cruiser, probably a step up from the old Chris Crafts. And uh, one of the uh, grandsons of one of the owners... Uh, actually came to Brooklyn Boatyard and had them build this wheeler. And it was drop dead gorgeous when it left. And it was supposed to go to every boat show. 
to promote it. And uh, of course, there's no boat shows. Uh, So, you know, hopefully we see it next year at the boat shows. But the rumor is that he may want a bigger one. So if he can sell this one, he's going to order another uh, bigger model that he uh, that the Wheeler company produced back in the 60s. Uh, Go like boat people sometimes. Oh, yeah. So the uh, the brokers who uh, who sell that boat, are, are they called Wheeler dealers? Yeah, well, they could be. Depends on which one you went to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know a few of them. Yeah, there are. Again, it's uh, new captain time, possibly, in the uh, big boat we're all sailing in here, SS America. And uh, good captain, bad captain. We're talking none on boat talk. Again, let's have a feedback loop with the audience mentioned before about email. Try boattalk at gmail.com or barefootboattalk at hotmail.com or info at weru.org slash boattalk. And again, really miss feedback with the audience. It's uh, not the way we want to do radio. We are trying. Come on. Help suggestions comments criticisms please and that'll put boat talk back in the slip for another month hope you enjoyed it there's a shipload of old boat talks to listen to at weru.org in the archives there till next month thanks for supporting community radio